Today from the Global Lane, Ukraine defeats and cracks in the Russian regime. Is Putin losing support from his top officers? I think that these people realize that this is really not going well. And uh, do we go down with this Titanic? Negotiations resume in Istanbul. Is President Zelensky the only one proposing concessions to end the war? What Russia's would like him to do is give up the uh, eastern part of the country that Russia has occupied. I hope that the Ukrainians can hold out. CRT and sexual instruction in American classrooms. How did it come to this? Our world is what it is because of the inactivity of Christians. And not only Chris Rock, that big Oscar slap was really a slap against all of us. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. Beaten on the battlefield, but not in the air. Losses on the ground in Ukraine have led Russian President Vladimir Putin to shift his strategy and tactics. So what is he up to now? How should America and NATO respond? Here to provide some thoughts on this is retired Brigadier General Peter Zwack. He served in Moscow as the senior U.S. defense attache to Russia during the pivotal years of 2012 to 2014, including the Russian invasion of Crimea. He's written about his Russia experience in the book Swimming the Volga. General Zwack, it's a pleasure, sir. Russia's Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu said this week that liberating Donbass in the east of Ukraine was now the main goal of Moscow's military operation. So Russia's still shelling Kyiv. So what is Putin up to at this point? The Russians, uh, I think that there is a hubris. Um, there is disdain for uh, for Ukraine that came out, you know, and Putin had been talking it for a while. The country doesn't deserve to exist. It's really a, a it always been an appendage of Russia, whether the empire and the Soviet Union. And uh, he looked down on the president of Zelensky. But the bottom line is that the Russians have been um, almost humiliated in this uh, in this first round and when i see putin when i conjure putin i i i see him seething i see him in a rage when he thinks about this uh vladimir Zelensky, this unlikely unlikely george washington for this new ukrainian country that whatever happens to him i hope that he survives as we all do the russians are exhausted um, actually, they've been in a war they didn't imagine and a fight that they never imagined against a motivated enemy, an angry enemy, meaning the Ukrainians. And the Russians, they really aren't. They're now fighting for their survival in a totally different way. So I think they've had to pull back, uh, reorganize, reconstitute, get their soldiers into the game, uh, get the reinforcements uh, down uh, and reorient, as you mentioned, while keeping pressure in the Kyiv area, reorient towards the Donbass, eastern Ukraine. It was just too big a mission for them, especially against a revved up Ukrainian thing. So they need to refit. They need to reorganize. I think in the persona of Vladimir Putin, uh, he can't allow himself to be defeated. Well, President Biden has called for regime change. How likely is that to happen? What's the effect of that verbal blunder or should I say U.S. policy shift? Um, I think that, first of all, that um, it was a statement of passion and not a statement of policy. And I'll bet and yeah, and those of us that have been in the diplomatic, we winced a little bit. But you know, he said what was on everybody's mind. Uh, I'll bet you 90% of your 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 viewers and listeners um, uh, would feel 
feel the same way. However, it's dangerous for all the reasons that you're suggesting, because they do, uh, along with us, have the most consequential nuclear arsenal in the world, what I call civilization-ending nuclear uh, arsenal. And we have all been so, we've been hard with the sanctions and all, but been very, very careful not to put the regime into a tipping point where the regime thinks it's because of us and NATO and the West, rather than it's coming from inside. But it doesn't and, that, it doesn't, and, General, doesn't that allow for a bit of timidity there? I mean, we always had this concept of mutually assured destruction. Yeah. You use nukes, we're using them back against you. So instead of saying that, we're just saying, oh, no, they've got nukes. What will we do? Well, and you're right. And there is a side, it's, it's, um, there is a side aggression via nuclear coercion or extortion. But again, I would, I would submit that we're not dealing with a Politburo, which was actually a group that thought about these things. You increasingly are dealing with a, with a man with a unitary view. And like several of the dictators going into Second World War, their nation's policy and what they did was all based on the inner psyche and belief system. But we don't, we don't want to hand the Kremlin a rallying cry like the Soviets, you know, the Nazis are on us and all that. Yet we've got to be hard, we've got to be firm, and, and, and we're seeing the cracks in the regime already. And there are problems in the Russian military and security and intelligence apparat groups where um, I think that these people realize that this is really not going well. And uh, do we go down with this Titanic if it indeed starts to go down? But in the near term, they're regrouping. Um, as long as Putin is there, uh, they will never be satisfied with a stalemate in Ukraine. We have to be so careful about getting into, into combat because in the end, in the worst case, uh, do we push... Uh, Putin, as unlikely it is, um, into a Fuhrer bunker mentality, where at this point, the hell with all of them, and we've got nukes. Okay, retired Brigadier General Peter Zwack, author of the book Swimming the Volga. Thank you for sharing those insights. We appreciate it. Hey, you're, uh, you, you uh, do really, really good things in your network, and just God bless you all. And let's just hope we all get through. I don't think we've been in such a dangerous space since the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Does the current stalemate between Ukrainian and Russian forces mean the war in Ukraine will soon come to an end? Or is there still a long, devastating road ahead? Well, joining us to provide some insights is former Florida Congressman Francis Rooney. Mr. Rooney also served as U.S. Ambassador to the Vatican. Ambassador Rooney, uh, thank you for being with us. So Ukraine and Russia are working on negotiating an end to this war, and President Zelensky has said... Uh, that a new compromise is possible to end the war. He says Ukraine may agree to remain neutral in the future. It would no longer seek membership in NATO if it's given security guarantees. So what do you think of that proposal? Well, Zelensky's pretty clever. He's not really giving anything up to, to go for that. And if he offers neutrality and no NATO and probably no EU, that's not giving much up because I don't think he's going to get NATO or EU anyway. But uh, what he doesn't need to do and what Russia's would like him to do is give up the uh, eastern part of the country that Russia has occupied. And I don't see how it's in Zelensky's interest to do that, given how well they've been able to re repel the uh, Russians. 
Well, Zelensky has said that he wants Russia to keep only the parts of Ukraine that he held, they held uh, prior to the invasion, but it looks like Putin has no intention of giving up Crimea or that land bridge now that he has uh, to Crimea. Uh, so would that be a deal breaker? What's your take on that one? Uh, yeah, I think for right now, Zelensky should insist that it is. I mean, Russia has the Crimea and Sevastopol and all that, and I don't think we're going to pry that away from him. Obama gave him that, and it was unfortunate and really quite tragic. But uh, we don't need to give him the land bridge connecting uh, Russian territory down to it, and that's what he's trying to get. And I hope that the Ukrainians can hold out. Well, it looks like he's also trying to get some ports there, like Mariupol. I mean, he, he, that looks like mm -hmm. a, a, I mean, an apocalypse there. What's your take on that? Should he yeah. keep that? No, I, I think that, that Zelensky's comment that, that he's willing to just take the status quo ante before February, mid-February, whenever they started all this, and, and move forward as a neutral state is a pretty good offer. Uh, I don't know that that would be enough for Russia because Putin really wants the whole country. How about security guarantees, though, for Ukraine? How do you think that might work? Well, I don't know how we could do that. You know, I don't know whether NATO would be able to give the kind of guarantees that, that Zelensky uh, would want. Uh, and I don't know what Russia would do it. I mean, it might just get to kind of a standoff. Well, it seems like it'd be very difficult uh, for NATO to give security guarantees to a uh, non-NATO country, uh, but of course Ukraine always talks about the, the agreement that was made when uh, the nuclear weapons were moved out of Ukraine. Uh, we kind of reneged on that one, didn't we? We absolutely did, uh, and and he's right to to raise that. But um, now I don't think you're going to see NATO uh, take on the Ukraine. I just don't see it. Well, what do you see happening then? What's the road forward here to end this war? What needs to happen at this point? I think the um, as long as the Ukrainians can keep the heat on and make it difficult and expensive for Russia, and it could ultimately provoke, provoke uh, Putin into doing something disastrous, which would engage the rest of the world even more, like if he uses chemical or biological weapons, or if he should, in the worst case, use tactical nukes, then, then this thing could escalate to a whole new level. Uh, the president has said that using uh, um, biological weapons would be crossing a very serious red line. And, and I think he's right to say that. Putin will make it look like uh, he didn't do it. He'll make it look like uh, the Ukrainians themselves did it, just like he tried to do with Syria. And, and he's an intelligence operative, so he's used to trying to turn it back on the other people. But we need to be vigilant and uh, maybe more vigilant than we were in Syria, quite frankly, in, in calling them out. Well, it seems like he's operating like he did in Syria. I mean, just talk to the, to the folks in Syria who've experienced uh, his bombing. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking of many places like Aleppo. Aleppo was leveled uh, with Russian bombs. What do you think of that one? Yeah, he's a take-no-prisoners operator. And he's out there in some very strange area, a very strange place. You know, taking on the Ukraine uh, invoked a global response that I don't think he anticipated. I don't think he knows how to get back from it. I don't know if he even wants to get back from it. Just, I think we had to put the maximum pressure on Russia. You know, you remember before the end of the Cold War, there were no Russians around here. The only Russians in this country had a diplomatic passport. We didn't have any of their products, and they did not have ours. And I think we go back to that as long as Putin's president. And there are plenty of Russian operatives here in the U.S. right now, correct? 
There are. They've got a huge embassy up there on Wisconsin Avenue, and I'm sure most everybody in there is an intel officer of one form or fashion. But uh, we don't need Russia. And uh, I think we should put maximum pressure. I wrote an article recently. I said, if, if, if Russia, if Putin wants a Cold War, let's give him one. We don't need them. Okay. Now, we've got a few greedy companies that, that should get with the program and say, okay, we're going to support the policy objectives of the Western world and get out of there. Okay, Francis Rooney, former congressman and former ambassador to the Vatican, thank you for taking time to share your insights with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. So you say you've had enough of politics as a Christian? You feel if you wade into the swamp, your church clothes may get wet and muddy? Our next guest says Christian silence and apathy only empower the left. Many of the same people who are making decisions affecting our children's education and our lives. And you may know Stacy Washington from the Sirius XM radio show Stacy on the Right. She's author of the new book Eternally Cancel Proof, a guide for courageous Christians navigating the political battlefront. Stacy, I listened to your radio show. It's a pleasure to have you with us, by the way. Uh, Newt Gingrich once said, if you drain the swamp, you better have someone who watches over the alligators. So set us straight here. Why do you think many Christians are afraid of the alligators? Why don't they want to get involved in politics? Well, so a lot of Christians feel like at this stage of the game, it's better to just take care of their own house. So, you know, they attend church, they try to raise their children in the most godly fashion they can, and they serve. And at that point, you know, they're like, what can I do? The world is what it is. But our world is what it is, especially here in America, where we have a Judeo-Christian founding, because of the inactivity of Christians. We actually pay for the cable. We fund the public schools. We pay for the teacher's salaries, the janitors. We pay for the uh, bond issues that improve those buildings. And we elect the school board members. Even if you're not voting, you're still contributing to that election by your non-participation. So, um, what I'm saying in this book is that we have a responsibility to not just to pay our taxes, but to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, because in this case, a representative form of government has a citizen as the highest officer in the land, and it is a requirement that we participate. And as Christians, we're supposed to be the hands and feet of Christ. So it's not just caring for the widows and the infirm and those who've been imprisoned. It's also caring for our political processes, because children who are innocent, are having that innocence stolen from them through the proliferation of pornographic books in schools and libraries, and the overall critical race theory. Um, it's it's a it's a curriculum that's being forced down their throats, and it's stealing their innocence, and it's stealing the unity that we have as members of the same country. Let's talk about critical race theory. That's one big issue that I know uh, you would like to approach from a biblical perspective, critical race theory, even the revisionist history uh, of the uh, 1619 project. So how should Christians respond then without coming across as being racist? Well, so first of all, the whole idea that if you oppose something, you're opposing it because of racism is a tactic. And when tactics are employed against you, you come back with the truth. There's no reason to discuss race as a reason to oppose or support critical race theory, because critical race theory comes from critical theory, which is a Marxist ideology, a method by which you can move a society from capitalism to socialism with the end goal being communism. And I explain that in the book. So you actually just come back with the truth. What we want as Americans is true black history, which means that instead of Black History Month, we have 
black history curriculum as a part of our overall history. It's not even black history, it's just true black history. Certain black uh, historical figures played a role in the founding of this country. We've been here since day one. We fought in the uh, war for independence. We have contributed and those stories are embedded in the curriculum as a part of the entirety of it to include slavery and uh, also then, you know, the war where we fought over slavery and we then eliminated that. And then and that was our civil war. And then we move into the modern day era where all of those struggles have resulted in a society that is the best society to be a minority in on the face of the planet. So your response to anyone who wants critical race theory is that 1619 Project and Hannah, uh, Nicole Jones, they, they have an actual end goal in mind that has nothing to do with education. It's about the destruction of our society as we know it. We want to knit our society together and to promote it and to preserve it. So we, we have to come in with the truth, uh, with love, but we can't, we can't back down. And I, I know you said uh, you may go to hell for saying this. You were opposing uh, Judge uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, but if she's uh, appointed to the Supreme Court, or confirmed, I should say, she'd be the first woke Supreme Court justice. Everything today seems to be about feelings instead of facts. So what effect is that having on our society, even choosing our Supreme Court justices? Well, so Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson is actually an ideologue. And she's wholly unsuitable for the Supreme Court, not because she lacks qualifications. She's a double Harvard University uh, graduate. So she did undergrad there, and then her, her JD is from there. So it's not about her qualifications. It's about her ideological viewpoint, which is clearly antithetical to sitting as a lifetime appointment on the highest court in the land. She actually under-sentenced child pornographers, and she believes in critical race theory. Those two things are disqualifiers. The fact that she refused to define what the word woman was is just kind of a, a demonstration of the previous two things that I listed about her. So it's it's the Republicans' responsibility to refuse to pass her nomination out of committee and to force President Biden to send in more, uh, more moderate or less extreme uh, judge justice for us to consider. It, but that doesn't happen without the Republicans having the backbone to do it without fear of being called racist, even if you are called a racist. I mean, let's face it. You can, if you're watching the show, you can see that I'm black. I don't hate myself. And I am also not a racist, but I'm routinely called a racist and told that I hate myself because of the views that I hold. So I can choose to listen to that and back down and be quiet. Or I can choose to remember that I fear no man because I am empowered, I am empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak truth. Okay, the book is Eternally Cancel Proof, a guide for courageous Christians navigating the political battlefront. Stacy Washington, author and host of the SiriusXM radio show, Stacy on the Right. Your show's on weeknights immediately following Mark Levin, 9 p.m. midnight to midnight, I guess, on the uh, Patriot Channel 125, correct? Yes, it is. Thank you so much for letting me come on and talk about the book. It's available for sale on Amazon, and it'll be in bookstores in a couple of weeks. Okay, love hearing you on the radio. Thank you, Stacy. God bless. God bless you. Chris Rock may have been the recipient of Will Smith's slap at the Oscars, but the slap seen around the world was really a slap against us all. It was actually like another big punch to the gut. More degradation of American culture, all brought to us by the Hollywood elite. What message did that slap send to the global audience, especially to children who were watching? The message was, it's okay to respond violently when someone says something that may offend you. It comes at a time when youthful violence is erupting in our society. The Children's Defense Fund reports 
The one child or teen is killed with a gun in this country every two hours and 36 minutes. In 2018, at least 16,000 kids were injured by guns, one child every 32 minutes. And many of those violent disputes may have started with one intolerant slap. But Twitter and other social media have allowed videos and images of the Oscar Award slap attack to be viewed over and over and over again on their platforms. Yet they'll block politicians like Tulsi Gabbard for saying things their censors don't like. Do you think there may be some hypocrisy or a double standard going on here? No wonder free speech advocate Elon Musk is now considering launching his own social media platform. People are fed up with being slapped by big tech and Hollywood, their perverse influence being imposed on our culture and politics. Here's another example from Oscar night. Wanda Sykes voiced her disdain for Florida's new child protection law, which critics have dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill. I don't know if this was scripted, but it definitely was an in-your-face political statement. We're going to have a great night uh, tonight, and for you people in Florida, we're going to have a gay night. Gay, 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 Free speech, yes, but not political statements at the Oscars. Just tell jokes and present the awards, okay, Wanda? No wonder the Oscar ratings were the second lowest in history. And I wonder if Wanda Sykes and other Hollywood celebrities opposed to the new law will still vacation in Florida. I bet they will. Folks, most people just want to be informed or entertained, not lectured to by a bunch of depraved elitist big tech censors or actors and producers. And they certainly don't want to see intolerant, violent acts played out at the Oscars. Before he abruptly jumped from his front row seat, Will Smith should have remembered his Fresh Prince of Bel-Air days and asked, what would Uncle Phil do? For all of us, when someone says something that offends, whether in person or on social media, before you respond, ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channel, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.